0: in a release from uh, the housing minister, Ravi Kallon, who has also said that new laws will be tabled to deliver more homes for people faster, transition to cleaner energy, and keep people safe and communities strong. So how do you do that? How do you address the housing crisis? Well, some of the things you're talking about, delivering more small-scale multi-unit housing that is within reach for middle incomers. Those include townhouses, duplexes, even triplexes, allowing the secondary and basement suites everywhere in the province, speeding up municipal and provincial permits to reduce costs, remove unnecessary delays and deliver more homes faster, and delivering thousands of new homes in areas well served by transit and creating more vibrant communities That's always interesting. What is a vibrant community? But creating more of them with services near those transit hubs. All of it sounds like great things, but is this really going to address the housing crisis? Can you bring in the right legislation to do so? Where do you stand as a province in an issue that is municipal, provincial, and federal? Well, let's bring in a different perspective and go right to BC United leader Kevin Falcon. Mr. Falcon, thanks so much for being with us this afternoon. Happy weekend ahead.
1: And happy happy weekend to you, Bruce. I was laughing as you were reading off that stuff. Sounds so wonderful. These lovely announcements.
0: Well, it sounds so simple. I mean, all you have to do is, and there are the things. It's solved. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Where do we start with this? Uh, I know that you have... Raise some concerns about the cost of actually developing uh, this housing. Is that the biggest issue? Where do you where do you kind of uh, fall into this belief that can be solved? Sure.
1: Well, first of all, look. I think it's very important for your listeners to understand something. Um, none of the people in the current NDP government have any history or understanding of how the housing business works, and I think that's evident by the fact that after six years of all their announcements and reannouncements and promises and commitments, we've ended up actually with the worst outcomes in North America. We actually have the highest housing prices in North America, third highest on the planet. We've also ended up, by the way, with the highest rents in the entire country. So if this was a private business and you were getting these kind of results, you would fire the people that delivered them. Um, but instead, what we're going to get is more promises that sound good, but they're from people that don't know what they're talking about. And I say that in the most charitable way I can. I spent a decade, the last decade in the housing business. Okay? In, the, in the company I worked with, we actually built more houses in that one company than the entire province of British Columbia did. So here's the problem. They make these lovely announcements that sound really great. Now, the problem is they spent the first uh, five years Well, David Eby was housing minister for a good chunk of that time saying the problem with housing was caused by foreign Chinese buyers and uh, developers that were, you know, making out like bandits. So they said, let's just add a whole bunch of new costs to housing. So they introduced a whole blizzard of taxes. And they thought somehow that by adding more costs to housing, it would somehow get cheaper. Well, guess what? It didn't work. So now they're desperate and they're saying, okay, well, now we're just going to make every single family lot a fourplex. And simplistically, that sounds good because people might think, oh, that's good. Now we'd have, you know, instead of 10 single family homes on a street, we'll have 40. Well, here's the problem uh, they've never developed before. So what they don't tell you is that actually to take a street of single family homes and suddenly, you know, make it 40 homes instead of 10, you've got to spend a lot of money upgrading the sewer, the water, the power. And it's very expensive and that means that this affordable housing you're you're hoping to get that's not going to be affordable it will actually be very expensive for the people that are trying to buy those units
0: well let's so just a take problem. a look at one area and i am going to use my own experience yeah. i live in sure. uh, the clayton heights uh, willoughby area of uh, exactly. surrey exactly no well <laughs> yeah and uh you know it's, it's great there are a lot of um people living in homes that have uh, two or three different units. But you know what? It's not even parking, which was talked about as a municipal concern a few years ago. It's congested when it comes to being able to uh, travel on the streets. Try going up uh, 208th. Uh, It's almost impossible now. And it's going to get a whole lot worse. And, And, you you know, know, it's almost to me like you're offloading a lot of things onto the municipalities and saying... You know what? Uh, Here's what we're going to do. We're going to increase density, and good luck with that.
1: That's exact. You are exactly right, and thank you because you've nailed it on the head. You made my next point, which is I was actually going to use Clayton as an an example. There were literally fistfights taking place in that community because of all the parking challenges. And the problem is when you take that street of uh, you know single family homes and you suddenly you know quadruple the number of people there guess what happens? Huge parking shortages. That's the problem. Then you also get the other point you make is actually it goes against, you know, really 50 years of learning about what's good for the environment and, and good for building communities. And that is to avoid sprawl. You do not want to spread people all over a broad community because then they have to drive because they haven't got access to good transit. So what we would do differently is say, okay, first of all, Let's not throw away all the principles of planning and what's good for the environment and good for people, et cetera, by making sure that the density is really along, uh, along the corridors where you've got transit or proposed transit. That's where you want to put most people. Then you have gentle density. The farther you move away, it you know maybe goes to six-story buildings, then it goes to four, three, and then you're down to townhomes, and then back to single family. Um, but you want people to be able to cycle and walk to work and not have to drive. But this idea... Surrey is the best example that you're going to take all of those communities in South Surrey and turn those single family homes into fourplexes and don't think that that's going to cause even more traffic, chaos, and carnage that we've, than we've already got. You are dreaming in technicolor. It's not going to work. And so that's why I think the public needs to understand these simplistic solutions they come up with are born out of desperation. And I get that because nothing they've done has worked so far, but we can't lose sight of what is actually attainable and what we actually have to do and how we actually get the private sector and the non to build exactly what we need. And that means people that know what they're doing.
0: We're talking with BC United leader Kevin Falcon about uh, this latest announcement on housing and their priorities going to be setting or set out in the uh, upcoming uh, session of the fall legislature um, you know, when when I think about some of the issues, there are people, and you know this, Kevin, they're going to say, oh, yeah, Kevin Falcon, yeah, pro-developer, and I hear him, but, uh, you know, he's just saying everything that the developers want to hear because they're going to make a huge profit. Where is the balance?
1: Well, first of all, so when I left government in 2013, uh, and I was working for a developer, for sure, um, we were selling townhomes in Surrey for $375,000 to $450,000. Um, that was actually affordable. After six years of the NDP, those are now worth or uh, reselling for over a million dollars. That's totally not affordable. And I think it's really important for the public to know that if we want lower prices, we have to get, we have to flood the zone with new supply, all kinds of supply. But we have to make sure we do it in a smart way. And it's not about developers. Yes, during good times, they can do well during bad times nobody talks when they go out of business like some of the ones you've heard about recently or they're losing money like crazy in a high interest rate environment like you're seeing right now where projects are being shelved etc nobody talks about that the fact of the matter is it's a high risk high reward business there's no doubt about it but we need the good developers to be building the supply that we're going to need the NDP literally believe that they want to get into the housing can you imagine the NDP building housing I mean we've already seen what's happened with BC housing it's It's been a scandal. They've had to fire their own board that they appointed. They've got hundreds of millions of dollars being spent with no accountability. They're getting terrible results. We do have to have people that know what they're doing in government, and that's what concerns me the most. There's no simple solutions. I should tell the public that. But what we did is we missed six years where we could have been making a lot of progress because we had a lot of people in government that misdiagnosed the problem. And then all they did was add more cost to housing, thinking that was going to make it more expensive. There's going going to be a lot of
0: reaction to this. You know it. Uh, They're going to be calling in and uh, taking you to task, taking me to task on some of the questions here. I would love to hear from some of the callers. So stay with us. Tell me what you think about this, fixing the housing crisis. The NDP plan is out here with, uh, you heard the suggestions, Is it the right direction? The direct quote from Ravi Callan, Minister of Housing, also the government house leader. He says, everybody in B.C. wants to be able to build a good life here with an affordable home and a safe community they love, surrounded by quality public services and good job opportunities. That as new legislation... Uh, Several different pieces of legislation will be brought in during this upcoming fall session of the legislature. Our guest, BC United leader, Kevin Falcon, and your phone calls at 280-9898. Let's go right to those phone calls. Uh, Kevin Falcon is still with us. Dave and Fannie Bay. Uh, Dave, uh, good afternoon. I hear that uh, you kind of point out to the empty land tax as something to be considered.
1: Yeah, actually, thank you. I've uh, been on the radio, this is the third time kind of pushing this idea. Over here on the island, there's there's a lot of land that people are just sitting on and speculating on. There's a lot right next door to me that uh, the guy bought it for 500 last year, and now he's trying to get 600 for it. And the problem I see is uh, it costs him nothing to hang on to it, you know, five 500 a $1,000 a year. Well, if it's going to go up $50,000, 100000 that's, that's
0: not right. Okay, Dave, and, let's hold it right there and go right uh, for interest of time, getting as many calls as possible. Uh, Kevin Falcon, what do you think about that, bringing in a tax for those uh, sort of people?
1: Well, there already is a vacant land tax if it's residential property or property that could be used for residential development purposes. There is a vacant land tax that is in place uh, that those folks would have to pay. So, uh, But look, I, I actually think, uh, Dave, uh, I really think it's important for the public to know this. If we want more affordable housing, we have to make it less expensive. And I'll give you one example. The NDP, when they want affordable housing built, they will send the nonprofits or the developer, whoever is building that particular uh, piece of affordable housing, a 400-page document telling them all the requirements that they want to have on that so-called affordable housing. It adds 30% to the cost, and it makes absolutely no sense. This is the problem when you have people that have never built anything And don't understand the correlation between when you keep adding requirements and say it's got to be the highest environmental standards and we want to have this, that and the other thing associated with it. It just keeps adding to the cost and that makes it less affordable.
0: Let's pick up on that by going uh, to Josh in Vancouver. Josh, building more units, uh, do you think it's going to solve the housing crisis? It would.
1: But I think the problem right now, like that, that bus is kind of gone. Like we had low interest rates for three years. That's gone now. So relying on the private side to build a whole bunch of uh, units and now taking the restrictions, you know, maybe taking some restrictions off, it's not going to do anything anymore because there's no money left in it. But I certainly agree with Mr. Falcon on the restrictions. I work in construction as well. And it just seems funny to me. You can live in a 1930s house in New Westminster with absolutely no issue. However, if you want to put a basement suite in your 1990s house, there's all kinds of issues. So I think there's probably bigger fish to fry than just telling people to build more.
0: Kevin Falcon, is that kind of what you've been uh, hearing when you talk to people in the construction business like Josh? Well-
1: Well, Josh is right, and I've worked with a lot of great folks in the construction business, and the thing that upsets me the most is a lot of the guys building these homes can't afford to buy them, and that just makes me crazy. So we have to get back to a few realities. One is this. The federal government has to play a role here, too, because with almost 200,000 people a year coming into British Columbia, um, we need to have the dollars and focus those dollars on making sure the infrastructure's there. The problem with the NDP government is they're trying to point the blame. They're blaming the local government, saying it's their problem. Well, the problem is, even if the local governments go ahead and build all this housing, the problem is you're not going to have the schools there, you're not going to have the hospital services there, you're not going to have the transit, because all of this has to be coordinated. And right now, in a community like Surrey, which is the fastest-growing in the province, This is a government that promised to eliminate portables in four years, and they've doubled them. So it's not good enough to just say, you know, build all this housing unless we also have the the other infrastructure that's got to go along with it. So it actually takes a bit of foresight and planning and making sure you're executing on those other areas uh, to help the uh, local governments out.
0: Foresight, planning, livability. Those are things that come into play. And uh, again, I'll go back and I'll say this. I think a lot of this is offloaded to the municipalities and it's province says, go ahead solve it here's uh here's the rule, um but that's just me uh let's take one more call uh Wayne in Coquitlam, what say you hey uh good afternoon, hey Kevin. I used to work with the Harry boy campaign. My
1: two questions to you are. Are you going to get rid of the of the carbon tax if the federal government does it? And also the tax on used cars. This has been a tax put
0: on by the NDP government that is crippling poor people only by used cars. Where do you stand on this before I support your campaign? Okay, I'm going to cut it off there. It is a great question. Actually, two questions, but it's off topic just for this one. So um, I do thank you for your interest in that. But we're talking today about housing and uh, those other questions can fill up an entire show in themselves. Uh, Kevin Falcon, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time.
1: And thanks very much for having me, Bruce. It's an important discussion to have because I do think it's important that we get knowledge, get knowledgeable people on the show talking about housing, not politicians that are making a bunch of announcements and reannouncements and have got us the worst housing market we've ever seen in the history of this province. So I think that's really important. But thank you for for allowing me the opportunity to talk about this.
0: Okay, thank you. Of course, tomorrow is Truth and Reconciliation Day. A little bit awkward this year because it falls on a Saturday. But fortunately, schools around the country, around the province, are uh, taking a look at some of the ways that we can celebrate and have been doing this today. And there have been plenty of topics and ways to explore this. One of them is the notion that comes across of um, Indigenous resurgence. It's an important one and one where papers have been written, and there's so much to explore here. But just as a bit of a refresher, I've just pulled out a couple of quotes. Uh, what is Indigenous resurgence? Well, this is an act of decolonization, where Indigenous communities are reconnecting with their traditional cultural practices. And to go along with that, another quote. In response to colonization, Indigenous people have not only Resisted colonial violence, but they have found ways to reclaim their cultural identity in the process of this resistance. Well, this would cover so much different territory, but one of the interesting things is there is a connection between this Indigenous resurgence and sports. And for that, we bring in Dr. Janice Forsyth, a professor in the School of Kinesiology at UBC. Dr. Professor, thanks so much for being with us. And did I get that right, or am I leaving out a whole bunch when it comes to Indigenous resurgence?
2: Um, well, I, I think basically uh, that's right. Um, it's it, it's a good way to describe, um, I think, what a resurgence is because it can be a hard concept to, to kind of grasp, but I think the way you framed it is really understandable.
0: So let's make the connection then between cultural practices with indigenous mm. resurgence and sports it is your area of research what are we talking about here
2: um right so uh, i i think the the basic thing the, the the nugget that people need to understand is that indigenous people had their own uh sports and games before canada was was colonized and settled um and those uh land-based practices were absolutely central to who they were as people it, um, you know, it was their training for life on the land. Um, they they practiced their ceremonies with it. Um, you know, it, it's how they live their, their, their land-based lifestyles. And it was for fun um, and health and, and all of the things, you know, that we talk about today. But they had their own sports and games before colonization came along. And people are starting to um, learn about those again and starting to practice them again at the same time that they're moving and continue to move into the mainstream
0: to, to do sports. You know, the way I learned about it uh, in coming up through school and very superficial and uh, and uh, certainly probably not in the right context was, oh, lacrosse, that came from Indigenous people. And many people today still associate uh, sport with the Indigenous community just with lacrosse. There's so much mm-hmm. more to it. Tell me about some of the different sports.
2: Yeah, well, you know, you can think about the sports, like their their physical culture, a lot like languages. Um, you know, there's hundreds of Indigenous languages uh, just in Canada alone. And if those languages represent um, nations, then you could also imagine that each nation had their own sports and games. And so um, before colonization, ugh, there would have been thousands and thousands of different types of sports and games um, being played. The fact that we only know lacrosse, um, I think speaks to the way in which it was appropriated by George Beers, who's a Montreal dentist, and then worked really hard to promote it. Um, so, you know, if you want to take a look up in the far north, um, that's a very, um, another place where we can see Indigenous sports and games. Um, but these ones are really interesting because they've been transformed by Indigenous people and put on the stage like themselves. So they did that. It wasn't someone else appropriating their their sports and then um, putting them into the mainstream. So if you take a look at the Arctic Winter Games, um, there are Indigenous Games that are part of that mainstream event. And uh, for decades, Indigenous people were working hard to try and get them into, um, uh, worked hard to get them into the, the Arctic Winter Games. So it would be like the, the stick pull, the pull push, um, the airplane, um, different versions of the high kick. And, and all of those were um Events that would have helped them to to train on the land. It would have prepared them for their land-based lifestyle.
0: If you want to explore some of these as continuing sports in our society today in 2023, is it something that we want to stay legitimately and authentically with the Indigenous community? Or is there a place to branch out and bring more people in?
2: You know what? Um, I mean, I I can't speak for communities because, um, you know, Each nation uh, gets to decide themselves, you know, how they want their culture represented on a larger stage. Um, But there are many Indigenous um, nations, many Indigenous peoples who want their games um, developed and shared uh, with a wider audience, um, you know, because they want their culture to to be known, too. Um, So it it really depends, like, you know, on the nation and and whose cultural practices we're talking about and, and what they'd like to do with them.
0: I see that sports and games are often considered as quiet tools for resistance. Mm -hmm. What does that mean, especially for boys?
2: Yeah, you know, that's really interesting. Um, So uh, when the residential schools were um, being uh, set up in a big way in in the late 1800s, and especially through the 1900s when sports became a really important part of residential school curriculum, Uh, part of the system, Uh, boys who had more opportunities and access than girls um, were encouraged to to participate in sports uh, because the the teachers and the administrators of the the residential school system thought it was a good way for them to assimilate because they thought it would um, replace uh, their old-time traditions and uh, make them be more like uh, Canadians. And so um, sports, as as you probably know, um, is often very um interior. It it allows people to feel and, and think certain things that they don't have to express verbally. And so in a way it was a very um private uh way to um resist um their assimilation and, and still maintain some sense of who they were. So they could be playing um basketball um and not letting go of their indigenous identity and feeling pride, you know, in who they were um, you know, as a, an Indigenous kid growing up in a system, that was meant to erase their culture. So it was really a quiet way of um, resisting overt assimilation.
0: Is it multi-generational then?
2: Uh, the quietness? Yes. <laughs> um, it can be. Uh, I mean, if you think about it from the point of view of people who... Um, you know, who, who have been um, forced uh, to lose their culture and, and change uh, profoundly, um, you know, they find different ways of communicating and uh, resisting. And sometimes, you know, being quiet isn't acquiescence. It isn't about, um, you know, deferring to the dominant um, culture. It, it also can be a way to just um, hold what is very near and dear to you, to your heart, to protect it. Um, And I think most people could relate to that. I think we've all been in situations where you just, you know, go quiet. Um, And uh, in many cases, um, you know, for Indigenous people, it's uh, oftentimes doing that more often than they should have to.
0: What's the understanding that's going to be coming out of the research that can actually help lead to more positive change?
2: uh well, I mean, in the area of sport um it's about how can sport um as uh, as a practice how can the rules for sport and the way in which people engage in sport um be extended so that indigenous people can feel more welcome in mainstream spaces so that means addressing things like racism um in 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 all of the ways it gets expressed like in poverty, overt racism um you know being discriminated against by not being um accepted onto a team or not even being encouraged to be on a team, um, to uh, supporting traditional Indigenous physical practices. Um, so, for instance, if we think about, um, you know, land-based uh, practices and the, the people from the North who transform their sports and games and um, into things like a pull push and um, the, the stick pull and, and whatnot – You know, if if we take a look at, um, you know, the way many people think about sport, they probably wouldn't consider that sport. And for many years, Sport Canada didn't either. Um, And so there are many traditional Indigenous practices that are not considered sport, um, but they are by Indigenous standards. And so um, I think we need to take a, a wider look at what constitutes sport as a healthy part of community practice.
0: How is your research being uh, considered or picked up or not picked up by the established Mm -hmm. sports communities, uh, sports bodies across the country? Are they taking this seriously? Are they talking Mm -hmm. with you or is there still a need for a conversation?
2: Yeah. I mean, that's a really good question. I think um, uh, it's, you know, and it's a really tough question. Uh, My, my, my initial thought is it's, It's being taken up in some uh, areas where, um, like in education, for instance, in physical education, I think there are more and more people who are thoughtful about their approach to what they do in the classroom Um, and not so much in sport because it really is performance-driven and they've got a very um, narrow focus in terms of what they think needs to be addressed when it comes to um, making sport better, and very rarely do they do Give deep thought to the culture you know of sport, and so we see that you know in different areas, for instance, right now there's the the whole kind of safe sport abuse and sport issue um that has been left to 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 linger and fester um, in this case it's uh, people just don't know what to do with it because they haven't spent a lot of time, and I don't think they have the tools um to to think through um you know what it means to uh, do indigenous sport, or or how to think about sport differently, or, um, or or how to broaden, you know what it is that they do for sport to make it more meaningful, to, to create that sense of belonging. So it's, there's still so much work to do in sport. I would say more than most sectors like education or health. I think health and education are just leaps and bounds ahead of sport.
0: It's an interesting area, a fascinating area of study and research, and thanks so much for sharing your thoughts with us and letting us understand that connection between sports and this. Thank you.
2: Great. Thank you for your time.
0: A bit of a tense and ongoing situation that's developing on the Sunshine Coast, and it has to do with BC ferries and cuts to service. You see, in the past month, there have been 30 sailings cut to Langdale. Those are the sailings that go between Langdale and Horseshoe Bay. And of course, that has people in communities like Gibson's and Sechelt, just to name a couple, very upset because they expected more and more services to be maintained and even expanded. That is issue number one. And it spilled over into our recent community advisory meeting that developed into anger and even some threats being made. Issue number two is reaction to that anger and the allegations of threats. BC Ferries' safety and security plan. Yep, they've implemented a plan at BC Ferries to deal with similar meetings in the future, saying that they have to be concerned about the safety of those who work for BC Ferries. And uh, some of those meetings are going to be virtual, not in person. You may have heard some of the details on the news at 4 o'clock talking about that. Well, let's bring in one of the people that is concerned and has raised some of these concerns. Diana Mumford is the chair of the BC Ferries Southern Sunshine Coast Committee. Good afternoon, Diana. Thanks for being with us.
3: Good afternoon. Thank you for inviting me.
0: You know, did I get this initial concern right? We're now dealing with 30 fewer sailings going into Langdale?
3: Well, that's it's 32. That's round trip. So that would be um, going each way. Uh, what happened is when the Coastal Renaissance was pulled from service, we had a supplemental ve- vessel. Which it's hard to call it supplemental because it was vital to our our traffic. But um, it took away one round trip a day. Uh, During the week, which is the sailing that for commuters at 5.30, so anybody wanting to get home now after work, if they're working in the city and then they're traveling home to the coast, you have a choice of either 4.45 or 7 o'clock. So it's taken away that extra sailing there, plus it's taken away a few sailings on the weekends, and that also includes things like uh, this long weekend and the Thanksgiving weekend. Instead of getting extra sailings, we got less sailings than we're used to.
0: You know, I used to work and this has been an issue for years that there have been some degree of concerns about uh, service to the Sunshine Coast. I used to work with a guy in radio at a different radio station who lived on the Sunshine Coast and worked in radio in Vancouver doing sports. And I remember he would dash out at the last minute and hope to get the ferry going back to Gibson's. I mean, it's a serious concern. It's been going around for years. But I was under the impression that uh more service was being added, and that was a concentration uh and a new c e o coming in and saying, "We're going to improve service am i wrong
3: no they they have told us that service will improve we there's talk in their performance term six um that's coming starts on April the 1st, 2024, that uh, I think it's in 2029 we are to get a second full-time ferry, but that's six years away. And so um, minimal improvements over the next few years if we see them, but we get promised those extra sailings and then another route loses a ship or whatever reason and because of contractual obligations to the province of the minimum number of sailings they need to provide we lose that supplemental that we have.
0: What's the impact on people living in uh, areas like Gibsons and Seashell? Are you hearing people unable to work or anything like that? Well it's
3: people not being able to get to medical appointments and procedures in the city because on the on the Sunshine Coast and in a lot of islands that are serviced by uh, ferries, those are, that is our road. That's like if you took away Highway One and said, "Go find somewhere else to get home." You do have some options. We don't. That is our road, and so if we're trying to get to the city or get home, that impacts our commercial traffic and our, uh, you know, our uh, goods and services coming in. It um, you're trying to get a flight out of the airport to get on a holiday not knowing if that sailing is going to go and if it's going to be on time or overloaded because we have over 30 percent of our sailings are overloaded so um it's You know, we just never know if we're going to make it on the ferry.
0: We're talking with Diana Mumford, chair of the Southern Sunshine Coast B.C. Ferry Advisory Committee. And uh, one of the quotes uh, from a media outlet uh, uh, has you saying, we'll just have to learn to swim. I mean, that's uh, the way people are starting to feel. A lot of anger and tension, I would imagine. And that was reflected in a meeting. Now, some of the word on the street is that meeting turned into... Some aggression and some threats of violence. Is that in fact the case?
3: There was one person that made a statement that was completely inappropriate. She referred to a gun. Um, I was chairing that meeting. We had uh, the FAC members there. We had a number of BC Ferry staff there, as well as 30 to 40 community members that were able to come and observe the meeting. The person that made the comment was sitting behind me. So the, the way the room was set up, there was some of the audience was behind us and so I was not able to see who said it it was shocking um to say the least and disturbing uh, but the conversation that had been going on with BC ferry staff they were understanding our frustration and they were trying to we could you know they were trying to think of some solutions that could help us so In the general scheme of things, it it just it it has taken that story to another location that it doesn't need to be because the most important part for us is our ferry service and people are so frustrated that the anger is boiling over and that's what's happening and and it's not just at our ferry advisory meetings it's. You know, uh, the ferry workers say people have become more aggressive and and nasty, spitting at them and swearing at them and swerving their cars towards them.
0: Many so, of those people themselves live on the Sunshine Coast and rely upon the same service.
3: Yeah, and so, you know, this doesn't help us taking it out on the ferry workers that we meet on our day-to-day basis. Um, this needs. This is a bigger issue. This is a much more complex issue we can't get a new ferry tomorrow i mean that just can't happen but we need to see some improvements and right now that that's not what we're seeing and in fact now we've heard that uh, the coastal renaissance isn't coming back till mid-december so is that how much longer we had told our change in service was a month now it looks like
0: it's three months. Okay, Diana, if you had one clear, short ask for BC Ferries to act on in the interim, what would that ask be? Uh,
3: the deployment of ferries so that it's it's fair and equitable.
0: Okay. Uh, And that's uh, something that uh, I guess you're hearing out of frustration from people there. Uh, Do you think that BC Ferries has has your ear now?
3: I hope so. And I think it's not only BC Ferries that needs to hear it. I think the provincial government needs to hear it because we are part of the Ministry of Transportation, not... Per se, but the way we're set up, the funding and everything. I mean, the Ministry of Transportation and the funding that we have for BC Ferries comes through the provincial government. So the ferry system needs to be funded in a, in a, um, a good way so that our roads, those ones that float. Get the same kind of of financial support as they do for roads and bridges and all the other uh, transportation systems that we have in our beautiful province.
0: Okay. Well, thanks for uh, spending time with us this afternoon on an afternoon that's probably very busy at the ferries and uh, outlining some of the concerns. Diana Mumford, chair of the BC Ferries Southern Sunshine Coast Committee. Oh, Johnny,
4: Johnny.
0: Baby and love you. Baby and love you. Baby and love you. you. This is the Jazz Joe Hall Show on 980 CKNW. Uh huh. Yeah. First plug it in for jazz. Uh, You know, ever wondered what it might be like to work at TikTok? Well, TikTok is, you know, concerned about its workers and about their love life so much so that TikTok has. A matchmaking service for staff to play Cupid for co-workers. Oh, Jerry Mayer Judson, show contributor. What is this about? So
5: this is TikTok's parent company, ByteDance. It's been revealed has... Basically, an internal matchmaking service. It is a channel within their workplace sort of hub. So think Slack, basically. Um, But for TikToks, you have different channels for talking about this kind of work. You have different social channels for interacting with your coworkers. This channel is called Meet Cute Which is cute. And uh, what it allows employees to do is sort of advertise friends or family members or acquaintances to their colleagues as potential romantic partners. So what I've gleaned from this is it's basically like Facebook Marketplace meets dating profile. So they make posts with a picture of their friend, family, acquaintance, Mm -hmm. um, with some other stats, I guess, like their height, their interests, things they like to do. And then folks within the company... can comment on it, and then we can facilitate a meeting.
0: I'm sorry. Nothing could go wrong with this idea.
5: <laughs> <laughs> Seems legit. And it's only, it, it kind of came to light by accident because international TikTok employees all over the world do all... Um, I guess collaborate through this workplace hub but the channel was visible. It's mostly just meant for the mainland China base because that's where ByteDance is based out of. It's kind of the core zone. So um, yeah it was accidental that this channel was revealed and uh, I...
0: So it's employee based. They came up with the idea. Yes exactly. There's
5: other companies as well that do this like uh, Huawei has one has an internal sort of matchmaking service for um, employees and same with Alibaba. So it's like a tech company thing that 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 they're doing. Wow, okay.
0: so yeah, I know what do, what do you make of this? Uh, would you would you be okay <laughs> with it?
5: So, in an, in an organic way, um, I kind of have a personal story. Oh, do tell. Exactly. So, I used to, it was like, I worked at a store, <laughs> I just worked at a clothing store um, years and years ago, and my one coworker, I met her brother at a party, and like how normal people meet each other, and me and her brother wound up getting into a relationship for a while, and when it was good, it was like super good, because I got to hang out with my coworker a lot, and I got to hang out with my boyfriend, and it was cool, they were both, they're, they both lived in the same house it was great but then when me and her brother broke up it made things a little bit awkward in the workplace because then I didn't get to be really her friend anymore and then I didn't and then I had a weird it was I don't think it's it didn't work out for me (laughs) anyway
0: and that is kind of closer to normal it does happen I introduce you to somebody if An app like this, and I'm just trying to think of a workplace uh, that I know or have been in. Mm -hmm. If they came up with an idea like this, I can't see of any route (laughs) to anything (laughs) resembling success. Like,
5: yeah, like I was even thinking say like I like I yeah I can't imagine I because we do it organically too like I would recommend if I have a friend or a family member or whatever that would go well with one of my coworkers here I might try to facilitate a meeting I've done that before I've introduced one of my friends to one of my coworkers here and that went good but I don't imagine that we would we would do it through through an internal source like what do you make of it
0: It's terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Just bottom line. It's a weird idea. No, it's just a big no. But this is what ByteDance, parent company of TikTok, says about the idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, They say the channel has a note for employees warning them not to post any personal information of staff. Okay. Okay. Isn't that the whole idea? (laughs) They can sell Um, out their relatives. Of staff. And a reminder that it is for introducing individuals outside of the company to those. Inside Inside the the company. company. Yeah, I don't know. I
5: don't know. It just seems like there's a service for everything, you know? There is a a website for everything, an app for everything. So I suppose this is just... It's very tech industry it's like of course we can facilitate this through a channel at work and we can make this happen in a, in a workflow kind of way but i just i don't know and i don't know how i would feel about my if i if someone in my family or a friend was like hey jerry do you uh, what if i posted your a picture of you and some information and showed it to potentially all of my colleagues and see if there are any bites like i don't know how i would feel about that
0: well the other part of it is um People that work in the tech sector are a different sort of people, anyways. That is true. So that's fair. I, I'm not disparaging anybody. Not entirely.
5: They have a type of brain and a type of success that I could exactly. only hope for.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a different sort. So I could see the community being rather finite. I don't know if this would work outside of. The tech. tech sector.
5: Yeah, I do don't think, think. No, I don't think it will work outside of tech. I don't know. I'm just, I've been so steeped in the media the workplace landscape. So I'm like, I don't think it will work in media. I just feel like, I, I don't know. It's, it's a very tech-specific thing. But if it works, and if there are long-term relationships, if there are marriages that come from this, then kudos to Bite Dance. But that's just such an interesting little dating tidbit in, you know, 2023.
0: They call it meet-cute. That name itself has a has a few problems for me. Mm-hmm. Um gee, I don't know if any time in my life I would have considered myself cute. Um, (laughs) But the phenomenon
5: of meet cute. And it's actually kind of funny because it's really contrived because it's a posting forum where you post things. It kind of takes away from a meet cute because meet cute is like you walk into someone in a coffee shop and then you meet each other. It's like a a film trope or like a a book trope. And yeah, it's just, it's an interesting name. (laughs) It is
0: an interesting name. It's an interesting idea. Do you see anybody else uh, possibly... I mean, TikTok is so well known. Oh, yeah. Do you see uh, anybody picking up on this idea? you think beyond the tax sector? Beyond the tax sector?
5: I have no idea because then the other industries are so large. Like what? Retail? (laughs) Uh, You know, but that seems, it seems, I don't know. Maybe the other industries, it just happens organically. I have no idea.
0: Okay. Well, there you go. Thanks so much. Uh, An interesting thing. An interesting move. Internal move, by the way. Just going to stress that. Yes. TikTok uh, matchmaking service for staff. Only staff members in China. They're around the world, but these are the ones only in China to play Cupid for their co-workers. Jerry Mayer Judson, Um, thanks so much. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate your time on that. Oh, so interesting. Yeah, big news, international news today, and it comes from the world of entertainment. Now, a suspect has been arrested in the 1996, yep, back in 96, Tupac Shakur shooting death. It happened uh, in Vegas this morning, 60-year-old and... We know him as Dwayne Keith Davis, was arrested uh, in Vegas. His wife's Henderson home, Henderson, by the way, being just outside of Las Vegas, that got raided back in July as part of an ongoing investigation into the shooting 27 years ago. And you'll remember at the time the rapper was shot and killed after leaving a boxing match on the Vegas Strip. His untimely death, he was only 25 years old, has been the subject of so many different conspiracy theories, stories, investigations, dreams, whatever. Let's talk about some of that, his impact, and what this all means by bringing in somebody that follows the world of entertainment more closely and knows more than anybody else I know. That's Eric Elper of ericelper.com, publicist, music commentator, and more Good afternoon, Eric. Hello, how are you? I'm doing okay. Huge news. What what, what were you
4: doing 27 years ago? I was trying to figure
0: this out. I certainly was younger. (laughs) You know, uh, it was a a bit of a different time. But I remember the profile of this. It was so huge when that shooting occurred just after the match on the Vegas Strip. And, uh, you know, 27 years later, we're finally getting this. It's astonishing
4: just how many people have come out with their own conspiracy theories, with their own ideas, with their own so-called proof. And even Davis, who was arrested today, not just wrote a book about it called Compton Street Legend. (laughs) He actually admitted in interviews and in the book, that he was the that he was in the Cadillac from which the, all the gunfire happened um, back in September 1996, and in fact his uncle um, was um, Orlando Anderson, and he was questioned because they all lived in the same house. Um, but he died, and so for years, when Orlando died, they the the the, the kind of thinking was well, maybe Orlando was the one that actually pulled the trigger. Um, And that was it. And maybe the Las Vegas police and maybe the Los Angeles police kind of hit dead ends, but didn't really want to admit it, and they kept the case open just in case. Well, look look what happened today. It turned out that they arrested um, Dwayne Davis, who is the the nephew, um, took his computer, took a copy of Compton Street Legends, took his uh, items in the home, and it looks like that this case actually... I'm not even going to say it's solved, because according it's to the internet, chapter, a lot of people that solved it already. Yeah,
0: that's what they would call just another chapter in an ongoing story, because this is ongoing. And I remember uh, some of these stories coming out of this, uh, the reasons behind it, the speculation, was this feud, East Coast, West Coast, right?
4: Remember yeah. that? Yeah, there was a, a whole slew of of anger and fights, and and basically, you know what what people have to remember is like, it the 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 rap game is not what it is today, where it's like tens of millions of dollars and everybody's safe, and you know people will beef and fight on Twitter, and then that's it. Um, this. This was real. This was people coming up from the streets, from broken homes, um, and talking and singing and rapping about um, crime and drugs and alcohol and just survival because every single day that they were alive was almost a miracle in, in some cases of it. Um, and it all started um, when Tupac and the notorious B.I.G., yeah. um, Biggie, they were friends. And then Tupac got shot years before he actually died. But the first time he got shot, he actually thought that Biggie was the one that set it up. And it wasn't just the fact that Biggie set it up. It's that Puff Daddy, that same Puff Daddy, was the one that put a bounty on Tupac's head for a million dollars. And, you know, these rumors just don't happen... Out of the blue, you know. Um, so then you end up with like a whole bunch of rappers in the California area starting to fight with all the rappers from New York, and that's where you ended up with the East Coast West Coast. Yeah, and, disrespect. Uh, you know, it was just never ending.
0: You know, and uh, and of course Biggie himself uh, ended up being a victim.
4: There were, um, I think, so far this year. I stopped counting last month, but there were thirty three rappers. So far in 2023, that have died by gunshot Um, is still. To this day. So this is just a never-ending cycle of violence when it comes to music. And it's so strange for people to kind of think about it because for decades the dangerous ones were Jim Morrison or yeah. Jimi Hendrix or Janet Joplin. And they usually pretty much all died from their own doing, whether they overdosed or whether they drowned in a pool. There was never this kind of violence until until you know the 80s when it got real serious, real fast. And it's, it's held so many, so much of us just at the edge of the seats every time that there was new information coming up. And
0: 27 years later we're still seeing it uh, connected to the rap uh, community as you point out. Uh, Eric, thanks so much. Appreciate your time. Thank you so
4: much for having me. We'll Uh, talk soon.
0: We'll talk again. Eric Alper, publicist and music commentator on that ericalper.com.